We live in a day and age that um, things were beyond um, miracles, beyond having things that are the only explanation is God. And the more uh, things happen or the more we look at it, the less uh, that uh, contention seems to be true, that there is miracles that still occur and still happen, that God is the only explanation. Certain things, uh, I hear there was a miracle this last week at Fatima, a blind girl, if I remember right, uh, suddenly receiving her sight. Uh, this stuff happens, and there's no other explanation other than God doing something. But we still live in this day and age that looks for any other explanation. And today, uh, we have one of the, one of the two uh, miracles that we have uh, that try, people try to explain away. The other one is, of course, the multiplication of the loaves. We have that referred here after he had fed the people. You know, and uh, every time we have that, I, I uh, have to, I love to pop the bubble. You know, we, I hear, and maybe you've heard uh, the story of, well, you know, really what it was is everyone just reached into their lunch boxes and they began to share. That's a rather cynical view that it, we needed a Messiah to tell us, go ahead and share. Uh, no, the, the better, uh, the less cynical is that they had nothing except the five loaves and two fish and Jesus made it multiply, made it enough to fi feed 5,000 uh, men, not counting women and children, one time or, or uh, whatever it was, uh, and uh, fed 4,000 men, not counting women and children. But we have this walking on water episode, or, or this, or, or in the, uh, the other Gospels, we don't hear of Peter walking in the water in the other Gospels. Uh, St. Matthew is the only one to re record that. But uh, a number of years ago, I heard, and it was, it was in an article dubbed the, the boogie board hypothesis, if I remember right, but it was boogie board. That what happens uh, because of the, the slope of the valley and uh, the Sea of Galilee is in a, in a valley, hills on both sides. If the wind is, uh, or, or the night is particularly cold, that the, that you can get a sudden freeze on the water and you can actually get a sheet of ice that forms. But there has to be no wind, it has to be perfectly still, and the air temperature has to be actually sub-zero, and it has to be sub-zero for a moderate length of time. And it would be thick enough for someone to walk across. Or uh, maybe if a, if a particular sheet uh, would be formed, you could actually kind of slide it, hence the boogie board idea. You could actually kind of hover on the water on this sheet of ice. The difficulty is, if that's the explanation for how Jesus walked on the water, uh, what we have recorded does not fit at all because it is a windy, stormy night. The boogie board does not explain it. Others try to explain it away by saying, well, you know, Jesus knew where the rocks were. Now, uh, if you've uh, ever privileged, or those that are going along on the pilgrimage, will see the Sea of Galilee, will spend some time on the sea, you will realize that it slopes off rather quickly. There's no rocks in the middle of the lake. It is deep and wide. There's no explanation other than Jesus walking on the water. And the reason we want to explain that away, because if 
if Jesus really did walk in the water, that, uh, unlike us in Minnesota during the, the middle of winter, yeah, we can walk on water, you know, if we really wanted to. Uh, we, hence, we call it ice, but uh, it's still walking on water. Uh, there's only one expl- explanation for somebody walking on liquid water, and that is it's God. And that's why people try to explain this away. But this is God walking to them. The disciples see this, and it's in the, it's in the fourth watch of the night, and just a little lesson. There's, there's uh, four watches of the night. There's six during the day, six uh, two-hour watches, and, and uh, uh, four at night, three hours. So this is about, uh, it starts from three to six in the morning. So maybe about four in the morning. You know, I, I, I usually wake up about four in the morning to take some medicine and stuff, but it's not a good time to be awake otherwise. And the disciples, there they are, they're in the boat. They see this image coming to them. And at four in the morning, no one quite thinks clearly, but they know one thing. This can't be a human being. It has to be a ghost. And notice, I, I find it disturbing every time we have uh, this passage or a few passages. It is a ghost. Jesus doesn't say, wait a minute, guys, there's no such thing as ghosts. He never dismisses that. So he, he give you that to take home and ponder. Are there such things as ghosts? The scripture leaves it vague. But it is, it is I. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And St. Peter, as so often the case, he puts... He speaks first and then realizes what he's what he said. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you. Come. I don't know about you, but I uh, I like boats when I'm on the water. I I swim like a rock. I don't know if Peter. I'm sure Peter could have swim could could swim relatively well. In fact, we have elsewhere on and he. he clothes himself because he's lightly clad and jumps in the water and goes to the shore. Uh, We hear that at the end of John's Gospel. But here, Peter leaves the comfort of the boat. And as I would like to point out, it's not necessarily that first step out of the boat that makes him faithful or proves his faith. Because after all, he has one foot in the boat and one foot on the waves. It's the second step. And maybe not even that, because he might be close enough where he can still kind of hold on to the boat. You know, if he, if he had the uh, muscle strength and, and gymnastic skills, maybe he's holding on to the edge of the boat and he's just kind of hovering over the waves, but really he's not putting his weight on. It's the third step and the fifth step and the tenth step. The, Jesus must have been far enough away from them that they couldn't quite discern who it was, yet could hear him clearly over the wind and the waves, could hear him and, and understand. And, and So did Peter walk 20 feet on the water? Did he walk, meet Jesus halfway, where Jesus had been far enough away that they couldn't quite make it out? Peter was doing quite well, if you ask me. Because I wouldn't even take that first step out of the boat. And we might condemn Peter or taunt Peter or whatever. And someday when I, uh, God willing, when I see St. Peter in heaven, I'm going to ask him, what was it like, that second step? And that fifth step? But it was the step when he started to take his eyes off Jesus. The step when he began to realize that the wind and the waves was against him. The step that he began to understand that I should not be able to do this. 
That's when he started to sink. And thankfully, he was close enough that as soon as he cried out, Lord, save me, the Lord caught him by the hand, pulled him up. I find myself meditating on this passage frequently, especially when uh, things feel a little rough for me. I find myself wondering, well, what happened after this? It just says they got into the boat and they arrived at shore. But I can't help but think, and it's not, not scriptural or, or whatever, but I don't think it's against scripture either. I can't help but imagine St. Peter, our Lord taking St. Peter around the shoulder. St. Peter, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Don't you see you were walking towards me? Don't you understand that you, you were doing something that only I can give you authority, or only I can give you power to do? Don't you understand that if you keep your eyes on me, you can do anything? That all things are possible if you keep your eyes on me. But as soon as you take your eyes off me, you're going to drown. I can see them making lazy circles around the boat. I have to admit, and I can imagine the, the other apostles, their eyes, uh, jaws agape, just wondering in awe, who is this that walks on the wind, walks in the waves? Truly, this is the Son of God. They begin to understand that they have to keep their focus on our Lord. And perhaps with that is why the Church in the Wisdom gives us today's first reading, too. This first reading, is, as so often is the case with the Old Testament especially, it's out of context. We have it as a great reading in and of itself and about listening for the Lord, but in context, we begin to understand there's even greater something happening. Elijah was a prophet of God. He was the lone prophet of God. He lived in a day and age where uh, even the king himself, Ahab, had started to practice and was, was wicked in his practice of the worship of the false god Baal, the demon god, demanded human sacrifice, namely children. There were 500 prophets of Baal, and the people were steering their, their lives, beginning to commit their lives to Baal and ignoring God, ignoring the commandments. And Elijah was given commission by God to bring the people back, to remind them that he wants to cleanse you, he wants to free you, but he was alone. And he's angered by this, and so he creates a challenge. Or rather, God tells him to create a challenge. They gather on Mount Carmel, 500 prophets of Baal versus the one prophet of the Lord. He instructs them to create an altar, to sacrifice the bowl, but not to light the sacrifice, a holocaust offering. Rather, let Baal take the, God, the, the sacrifice. And so they're doing all that they can do, singing and dancing and slashing themselves. It's literally a bloody mess. And meanwhile, Elijah, you have to, you have to read it. It's uh, um, uh, I just jumped out of my head. First Kings 18. Elijah's on the sideline. Call louder, pray harder. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's gone on a journey. Maybe he's taunting them from the side. And they're there for hours and nothing happens. And he says, turns to the people and said, how long are you going to weary my Lord? And he instructs them to con construct the altar, to dig a trench, to uh, sacrifice the bull, to put it on the altar, to pour water on it and pour more water on it and more water on it until the trench itself is filled with water. 
And he says a simple prayer, and fire comes down from heaven, consumes the bowl, consumes the water. With that, he has the people turn on the prophets of all, the prophets that they had just been honoring, following, listening to, and they're murdered, killed. Of course, this is a good way to make the king happy, right? And so Elijah goes running from the king. And he runs through the desert, and he's going to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. And on the way, he stops. And he says, this is enough. Just let me die. And the angel tells him, get up and eat, lest the journey be too long for you. He gets up and eats after being prodded a few times. Continues on. That's where we pick up in today's reading. He's told by God that he's going to hear the Lord. He's told by God to be prepared. And so with all that anticipation and all that loneliness and all that anger and all that frustration, everything that's been going on, the running from the king, running for his life, even though the people are starting to turn back to the Lord, all this stuff, he's coming with this, and he hears the, the, the wind rending the mountains. And he knows that's not the Lord. And he hears the earthquake, and he knows that's not the Lord. And he hears the fire, that's not the Lord. Then we have what's translated here, a tiny whispering sound. The Hebrew is actually harder to translate than that. It's the sound of nothingness, is the closest explanation, but nothing doesn't have a sound. The stillness, the quiet. The Elijah, after all that noise and everything that's happened, recognizes God in the silence. And he covers his face and leaves. And God speaks to him. That's where, again, in context, what are you doing here? And he tells the Lord, I the Lord, I I am the lone prophet of the Lord. God tells him to go back and to anoint a new king and to anoint Elisha, his successor. That God has heard his cry and has filled him with what he needs. The same is true for us if we get used to listening for that silence. If, unlike Peter, we can be on the waves and keep our focus on our Lord. It reminds me of the story of a a country boy who uh, goes to visit uh, New York City. He's never been in the big city before, but there he is in Times Square, and he's all the lights and all the traffic and all the cars and all the people and all the... And if you know New Yorkers, they tend to be very loud and brash right? All of that. He's overwhelmed and he doesn't know quite what to do. And his, his host who is with him is, sees and recognizes that he's overwhelmed and the host doesn't know what to do because it's so overwhelming for this young boy. And all of a sudden the voice stops. And he says, do you hear that? Hear what? His host goes, I hear everything. And the boy goes, no, there's a cricket over there. How do you hear the cricket over the crowd? He was so used to hearing the cricket that when he heard that cricket in the midst of all that noise, that's what he could focus on. I think our Lord is instructing us in the same way, to focus on the littleness, to focus on the silence that he wants to speak. We live in a world that is so loud, a world that speaks to us such untruths, a world that tells us that Jesus couldn't possibly have walked in the water, or Jesus couldn't possibly have healed, or Jesus couldn't possibly have done this or that. And if we keep our eyes on the world, we're going to be be sunk for sure. Some quicker than a rock. But if we listen for our Lord, 
Grow accustomed to the silence. Grow accustomed to the quietness. This is where the Lord speaks to us. Not in the noise, not in the rending of the mountains or the wind or the earthquake or the fire or the waves, but rather in silence. And when we listen in silence, we're going to be just like St. Peter. If we ask, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come. He will tell us, come, and we will walk on the waves with nothing to fear.